Welcome to Present Value. Hi, Present Value listeners. I am Maria Peña, an Emerging Markets Institute Fellow at Cornell. I'm very excited to introduce this episode with Director of the Institute, Dr. Lourdes Casanova. In this episode, Dr. Casanova shares some of the findings published in her latest book, The Era of Chinese Multinationals, and dives into the competition between American and Chinese firms. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and as always, subscribe, share, leave a review, and follow Present Value on Instagram and Twitter at PresentValuePod. I'm your host, Gadi Rita, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming Professor Lourdes Casanova, the Gail and Roberto Canizares, Director of the Emerging Markets Institute and the Senior Lecturer at Johnson. Dr. Casanova specializes in international business with a focus on emerging market multinationals. In 2014 and 2015, she was named one of the 50 most influential Ibero-American intellectuals by S Global. She has also been a faculty fellow at the Atkinson Center for a Sustainable Future at Cornell and was a Fulbright Scholar, earning her master's degree from the University of Southern California and her PhD from the University of Barcelona. She is a member of the Global Agenda Council on Latin America, as well as the Competitiveness in Latin America Task Force of the World Economic Forum. She was also a member of the B20 Task Force on Information and Communication Technology and Innovation and the 2012 G20 Summit. Along with co-author An Miru, she recently published her latest book, The Era of Chinese Multinationals, which examines common characteristics of Chinese companies and their efforts to make China an innovation hub. The book augments its detailed economic analysis with case studies and interviews with corporate executives and experts in multilateral institutions. Dr. Casanova, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Let me begin by diving into your professional research into China's industrial strategy in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Many of us are familiar with how the U.S. government and corporate sector reacted to that crisis, but might not have details on how China adapted. Can you share more about what changed for China following the crisis? So China had been growing for many years before that. But the number of big companies from China at that time was still small. If we look at the Fortune Global 500, at that time, there were about 40 companies in the ranking. Last year, we had 119 against 121 from the U.S. So China took advantage of the opportunities created by the global financial crisis to acquire companies and fill the vacuum that was left by the U.S. and European companies. Those companies were fighting for survival while the Chinese companies had the power, the financial power, and also more and more at that time, also the business acumen needed to acquire many interesting companies all over the developed world. So China at that time also came to the rescue of other emerging markets. China increased at that time their investments both in Latin America and in Africa, and as such was able to also help those regions to get out of the global financial crisis much faster. The question is, 
if now will be the same, remains to be seen. It's too early to see beyond this crisis that we are experiencing. And from a strategic perspective, what were the motivations behind this global M&A activity? China, as I said, had grown a lot. Let's remember that Chinese companies grew with the growth of the domestic market. So most companies' growth depends on the growth of their domestic markets. We talk about U.S. companies or European or Japanese. Most of their revenues depend from their domestic markets. So let's remember, first of all, that Chinese companies grow with the growth of the country. Let me give you an example. For instance, ICBC, Industrial Commercial Bank of China. This is the biggest bank in the world by assets, not by market cap, but by assets. This bank, 90% of the revenues are from China and only 10% are international. The bank is present in more than 47 countries and territories and still only 10% of the revenues are generated from outside. So unlike U.S. companies that often go abroad um, trying to find efficiencies, most of the outsourcing of manufacturing or even IT services to China and India or Mexico have as a goal to become more efficient, to take advantage of the lower labor cost in those countries. However, Chinese companies still labor cost is low, don't need to look for efficiencies abroad. What they want is to increase their size, but mainly to acquire knowledge. So when a company stays only domestic, does not learn from international environment, does not acquire the technological and other uh, capabilities of the other countries. So Chinese companies went abroad with a different mindset than U.S. companies. As I said, on the one hand, let's not forget also natural resources. Chinese growth needed a lot of natural resources, iron ore from Brazil, copper from Chile, oil from the Middle East, Venezuela. So number one, natural resources, but more and more learning. So the Chinese companies were able to build their competitive advantage by going international. They would go, learn, come back and become a better company and sometimes go abroad, fail, and then learn from the failure and go back again. Following up on this, many companies in the world today, especially in Europe or Latin America, are on sale due to the impact that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on stock markets, and a notable example is Brazil. Have we started seeing any signs of an increased M&A activity in those regions, or do we need to wait this time around? This time, we need to wait a little bit. So this time, also what is happening, as it happened in 2008, as it happened in 2008, governments are saving industries and companies that they believe are key for their own economies. And at that time, let's remember, for instance, Citi. Citi was rescued by the U.S. government and the U.S. government took a stake in Citi. While the governments have a stake in companies, those companies cannot be acquired because the governments can, of course, exercise their veto. So this is happening right now everywhere in Europe, clearly. I am from Spain. In Spain, the government is rescuing companies and taking golden shares in those companies to avoid 
the acquisition, to prevent the acquisition of what is seen as strategic assets of the country. So that is happening. So big companies are being shielded from foreign acquisitions. And as you say, it's too early to say if China will use this as it did in 2008 to go into acquisition spree. My forecast would be that is there are many assets. China wants to increase its global footprint and definitely Latin America will need foreign capital and Africa as well, in spite of the recent incidents in Guangzhou that, okay, there were uh, some uh, African citizens were discriminated and were seen as origin of the virus. So in spite of that, Africa needs capital and Africa will welcome capital from China for sure and Latin America as well. In Brazil that you mentioned, Chinese companies are very present. As I said, first was in search of natural resources, but now we have Didi acquired very important app that was 99. And then Tencent has increased its investments in one of the few standalone online banks, Nubank. And right now the, the investments is $180 million. And also State Grid, the biggest electricity company in the world, state-owned from China, has bought CPFL, that is a privatized electricity company in Brazil, and also is responsible for building part of the electricity grid in Brazil. So the investments in Brazil, I believe, will keep growing and in other Latin American countries. On the theme of global expansion, another way China is increasing its global footprint is through the Belt and Road Initiative. Can you give our listeners some background on this initiative and how it came to be? So the Belt and Road Initiative was launched in 2013. Some, they call it the Marshall Plan of China. So like U.S. launched the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe after the World War II, China has uh, launched this initiative to improve infrastructure, both technological and ports, roads, railways in countries that are either close geographically. They use the metaphor of the Silken Road because it reminds us historically of Chinese Silken Road from the 13th, 14th, 15th century. So those are countries that are, as I said, natural market for China because they are close or they have historical ties or friendship ties with China. The idea is to diversify trade and to create a group of countries that will be under the Chinese influence or uh, friends and family, we are going to say. So then many countries have joined and they are of course, those close to China and also those in Africa. And as a result, the investments in those countries in the first five years increased by 50% from a very low base. But let's remember that for China, the most important countries as uh, targets both for acquisitions and greenfield are mainly Europe and U.S., in acquisitions, the most important target after the global financial crisis was Europe as a region and as an individual country, the U.S. For Greenfield, 
if we compare U.S. investments and Chinese investments using data from FDI markets that lists the announced greenfield deals, in the last 15 years, Indonesia was the first target and sec- for China and second U.S. For U.S., on the other hand, the first target was China and then uh, many other countries. So both economies, China and U.S., are very intertwined. But what is clear is that the atmosphere has changed. We are now much more in a very controversial, more confrontational situation. So China wants to establish spheres of influence somewhere in case that this uh, U.S.-China trade war would increase in the next years. Zooming in on Africa, which you've just mentioned, Africa is very strategic for the Belt and Road Initiative. Post this pandemic, do you believe that we will see the Belt and Road Initiative materialize rapidly in Africa to the extent that it might incentivize other European countries to join as well? So some European countries, Italy has joined, and also one of the instruments of success for the Belt and Road Initiative, China launched the Asian Investment and Infrastructure Bank, AIIB, and many countries have joined. So this is some call as an alternative to the World Bank, but actually AIB invests in many projects along the Belt and Road Initiative and elsewhere, and often in partnership with the World Bank or regional banks like the African Development Bank, in this case, when we talk about Africa, or the Asian Development Bank or Inter-American Development Bank. So that is what is happening. And in Africa, I believe that too early to say, because we are all in a survival mode to get out of this crisis. The forecast for growth for China is still in positive territory, according to the IMF for the year 1.2. But many countries are in negative territory. So we are all in survival mode. But looking to the previous 15 years and what China has done in previous crises and what is starting to do, yes, I believe that China will increase investments, what is called South-South investments. So both in Latin America and in Africa and in Southeast Asia in neighboring, in neighboring countries. In India, another country that, okay, is often the rhetoric is a little bit difficult because of the rivalry between both countries the border disputes, but yes, investments of China in in India are also very high. So yes, China will increase investments, I believe, during the crisis and after in those regions. I want to go back to China's acquisitions post the financial crisis. You mentioned knowledge acquisition being a key strategic priority. In the book, you also discuss how the Chinese industry consciously shifted from competing on cost leadership to competing on quality and differentiation with Western firms. How does this dynamic differ from the traditional comparative advantage of the firms in the United States? In the United States, the birth of innovation, technology, economic might. So let's think of the typical, topical uh, technological company in Silicon Valley, that uh, movie that shows how Mark Zuckerberg decided to move to Silicon Valley, because over there is where you have the knowledge, the ecosystems. So this is very important. And you build your own competitive advantage in the country that has the highest GDP per capita, not the highest overall, because there are many small countries with very high GDP per capita as well, but one of the highest 
you have the most sophisticated clients, one of the biggest markets in many industries. So you learn and you and you have excellent ecosystems. Everybody wants to copy the tremendous entrepreneurial spirit, technological advancements, innovation that you have in Silicon Valley. So you can being in Silicon Valley, again, you have these mythical companies, Apple, and all these guans, uh, Facebook, Google, that were born there, learn over there, build the competitive advantage, and then they go abroad. What we see as interesting in China is that some of these companies may not have, now also they, they, they may have as well, but till recently, they did not have that uh, very interesting ecosystem in which you build this comparative advantage. So Chinese companies have gone abroad to build this competitive advantage. I'm going to give you the example of Tencent. Tencent dominates the video games in the world. Tencent has obviously an office in Silicon Valley. And again, buying excellent games and developing many excellent games in China as well, then you build the competitive advantage in a trial and error way. So you go abroad, you learn from the company you acquire, you bring back this knowledge, and that way, in a circular way, you become a better company. You are not afraid of failure, and you are not afraid of that this failure will become part of your competitive advantage, as I said, in a circular way. Which consulting firm, good advice, you to go abroad without having this capacity. And Chinese companies do go abroad before having sometimes the best competitive advantage. In the context of Tencent and other emerging Chinese multinationals, you've noted the benefits of protectionism in early growth. We've seen in the case of Tencent that the Chinese government protected the company at first from international competition, and Tencent was shielded from Google and Facebook, for example, and grew very rapidly. Can we expect this model to become increasingly prevalent and potentially be adopted by countries in the West? So uh, one very important characteristic of Chinese growth has been that China has protected its own. Most countries protect their own companies because of their value they have. So if there is a problem with a company in a country, quite likely the embassy from that country will go and say, please negotiate whatever you you have to negotiate. Certain problems that have been between the European Union because of data privacy and US companies have been solved also with the help of the government. So it's not strange. What has been different is that, yes, China opened the economy, but to a certain extent saying, okay, you know what, we want FDI on these sectors, but not in the other ones because we want to develop our own companies because China understood something that is obvious. The business sector is a key pillar of the development of any country. For all my career, my 30 plus years that I've been teaching in business school, I've been mesmerized by how, for instance, Latin American countries have gone up and down, up and down. And being the protection of their own local companies has been very, very uh, controversial. And often IMF or World Bank have said, no, let be a level playing field. Let's compete and let the best one win. But when you are still developing, when you are in a difficult position, how to balance the appropriate open of the economy And at the same time, let your own grow, develop your own technological capabilities and 
innovation capabilities. So yes, China did that very successfully and built Alibaba, let's don't forget, Alibaba, a huge e-commerce company competing with Amazon. The second one was definitely Tencent. And how both actually, by being shielded in their own countries, how they both were able to also develop mobile payments. Now, mobile payments, China is clearly the leader in the world. What was a problem? That, okay, credit cards initially were not as commonplace as in Europe or US, turned into an advantage and they moved ahead in mobile payments. And how uh, sometimes my Chinese students say, oh, I feel behind now because I cannot pay anything and I still have to use checks and cash. That is, by the way, quite expensive for the system. At the same time, yes, Tencent didn't, so the WeChat, the equivalent of WhatsApp in, in China, did is quite global, but did not become as global, as prevalent as Facebook, for instance, or even WhatsApp. If we look at the numbers, WeChat has 1 billion users, 1.2 billion users, and Facebook was to, has now 2.5 billion, so definitely. But let's not forget that Tencent has gone international through video games. And Alibaba, through AliExpress, is present in India, in Brazil, in many other countries. So these companies are going global a little bit different. And as of now, in terms of social media, that yes, none of the Chinese companies were able to become global players in the same way that Facebook or Google have become. But I find interesting the phenomenon of TikTok. TikTok now is the social media of choice. ByteDance is the, is the parent company. And let's see how TikTok evolves. And yes, TikTok is very attractive to teenagers and very young population and is going quite global. And few of the users know that it's a Chinese one. Let's follow what it happens. So yes, if this would become really global, we would have a first global social media coming from China. This is very interesting. And so we know that multinational companies play a big role in increasing their home country's soft power across the globe. And this has definitely been the case with Chinese companies. We've all seen recently images of China donating PPE to European countries and even the United States. But criticism followed with a portion of the supplies being defective. My question to you is, what is the state of Chinese soft power today when on one hand Chinese multinationals are having a positive effect, but the pandemic might be having the opposite? Very interesting. So as I said, all my career I studied, I studied emerging multinationals and I've seen them going back and forth, uh, going up and down. And definitely Latin America, if we look at numbers, Latin America was unable to increase the number of big companies from Latin America. We see the numbers completely stagnated. And the difference has been Korea, that is now by many, many variables, a non-emerging market, has, is now a developed market. And again, another case in which Korea, the government, supported their own companies and uh, supported the expansion abroad of the companies. And another one is China. Clearly, China has a deficit of soft power. So if we think of any product, any product, we ha you have a Chinese and you have an American product. The American product, even if theoretically both have the same specifications, you will buy before a U.S. product as a 
client or a German product, a German car or a Japanese car. And if we look, this is reflected in brand directory and brand Z. So both uh, rank brands in the world. And although Chinese brands are increasing, because not only in the US, these are global, global surveys, not only US or Europe. So the value of Chinese brands, and we have one clearly, Lenovo. I mentioned Alibaba that has become also a global brand and also to a certain extent ICBC, but there is a deficit. So if you compare the number of Chinese big companies and the number of Chinese brands in these two rankings, brand Z or brand directory, there is no correlation. However, these two rankings are dominated by US and European companies. It takes a long, long while to build your soft power. And as you are saying, we see, too early to decide, we see that China has tried, is trying to increase its soft power in this crisis. And yes, sometimes there are products also because, again, uh, tests for the, the COVID, there are faulty tests everywhere and also some definitely from China and from everywhere. So we are into new products, not easy. But again, China will try, as I say, China is not scared of failure sometimes. And they say, okay, I'll improve it and I'll send you a best one. So this is a this circular way that I was mentioning before. And yes, China right now, there is trying to increase its soft power. It's too early to say if they will succeed. Definitely, we see the rhetoric going negative in the US as we speak, and in some countries in Europe, less so in emerging markets. So remains to be seen. We have to follow this up. And definitely, Chinese companies, Chinese products benefit a lot if the soft power of the country improves, as it has happened in the US and in Europe. Definitely, you build soft power through entertainment, American movies. We all have grown with American series, American movies. And it's not only Coca-Cola, American products, but not only through uh, movies, through many other uh, gestures, how U.S. has been a global leader in helping uh, nations in difficult times. So that helps a lot. Universities. Universities are great opportunity. How many international students, I being one, have studied in these great institutions? The American universities are still not rivalry in the world, and we all do our best to study, and then we go back and we talk so well. We collaborate, we continue collaborating, so definitely very important and not easy to build. I mentioned that right now, Xinhua University publishes more research papers than MIT and Stanford. Does Xinhua University have the same brand, the same uh, prestige than Stanford and MIT or Harvard? Not yet. Definitely, it takes a while and it's a society effort. Not only the university, but the country, the companies, as I mentioned before, all have to work together. You mentioned brand recognition and prestige as some of the main challenges that Chinese firms face. What other challenges do Chinese multinationals face that prevent them from reaching that elite American multinational status? And how long do you think it will take for them to fill that gap? Very interesting question. So the first thing they are doing is to become better. So right now, Huawei, a company that is all the time in the press. So now Huawei phones, 
if you look an iPhone or a Huawei phone, okay, the last iPhone in terms of camera is very, very good. But before the last iPhone, Huawei or Samsung had better cameras. Still, iPhone has this, it's all, it's Steve Jobs, the legendary business leader, the movies around, the design behind. So not yet there. So the first thing they do is, as I said, try to be technologically as good as the American products. That's the first one, very important one. Second, in the case of Lenovo, Lenovo acquired the PC manufacturing of IBM. So I used to buy, IBM was my favorite laptop for very long. So then when Lenovo bought it, I thought, okay, let me try a Lenovo. Now I am back in in Mac, but let me try a Lenovo. And then seeing that Lenovo was able to sell and to maintain and improve the quality of the PCs of IBM. So that's the first thing. And the second, as I said, the usual marketing, uh, for instance, Huawei, again, going back to Huawei, that is now number two in the world by number, by market share, right after Samsung. So by volume, Samsung is number one. Huawei, even during the trade war, number two, has increased market market share in the world. And number three, Apple iPhones. So then Huawei, what has done, you you land in Monterrey and I thought, wow, this is an Apple uh, shop. No, it was a Huawei shop in the Monterrey airport in Mexico. Or you go to the best malls in the Middle East. And again, you have excellent design Huawei shop. Or I lead the trek to Colombia from Johnson and we land in Colombia, not at the airport yet, but all over you have billboards saying Huawei is the best phone with all these specificities. So usual marketing efforts and um, and definitely to be good, so to qualify as one of the best. In smartphones, one of the best to launch uh, folding phones was Samsung from Korea and Huawei as well. They need to perfect them, but to say, okay, you know what? We are the first ones launching these folding phones it has an impact in terms of gaining brand. This is extremely interesting. And going back to the example of Lenovo, you mentioned that through an acquisition, Lenovo was able to scale their production and gain knowledge. Many countries have started scrutinizing acquisitions by Chinese companies, and there's a very big focus on preventing IP transfer or theft. This has been a central theme in the trade negotiations between the US and China. Many say that loose IP regulations in China played a role in propelling the country's growth. Can we expect that this higher scrutiny will impact China's growth or have Chinese companies reached a level of innovation where they might not need to acquire IP from other countries or companies? Excellent question. As you may have seen, China is now in number of patents, according to the World Intellectual Organization in Geneva, is number one in terms of filing patents in more than a country. So China now is playing the game to be at the top in innovation. I was invited to speak in an innovation festival in Guangzhou. It's launching what they call the three cities, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, and Hong Kong. They call it the New Bay Area as a big ecosystem tool of technology and innovation. So then 
Right now, China is not only interested in not violating IP, but also wants the world to respect its own patent. And we we have started to see lawsuits both ways, which is interesting and, and would have been unthinkable three, four years ago. So yes, the scrutiny is clearly increasing. And CFIUS has become, uh, has increased the number of people at CFIUS and they are scrutinizing acquisitions from China, but and that will prevent China from acquiring certain companies in the US and also in Europe. That is also similar scrutiny. But there are many, many companies all over the world that are interesting. And as you say, China still needs to improve their capability to manufacture chips and other technologies, but in other ones is starting to be leader. For instance, face recognition, electrical cars, battery power, solar power. So there are certain sectors, and I mentioned before, mobile payments. So China is becoming the leader in certain, very now is launching, they say they want to launch their own cryptocurrency. So they are. we are seeing leadership of China in top-of-the-line sectors that would have been unthinkable for a country of that GDP per capita of what is still an emerging market. So as you are saying, yes, now China wants to be their own patents to be respected as well. On the topic of innovation, 5G is in the news quite a bit lately, and we saw a lot of tension between governments and Chinese multinationals recently, most notably how the US prevented Huawei from being a player in 5G in the US. Do you believe that we are headed towards an increasingly adversarial relationship between the US and China, especially over new and sophisticated technologies? And how do these disputes today differ from past US rivalries? I try to stay away from politics because it's very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> but what I think is going to happen, a couple of things. One, we see these companies looking at the medium and the long term. I see U.S. companies and European companies, and I think business schools, we are at fault here, going too much into the short term. There are voices already here that are saying, you know, these quarterly reports, are they needed? And then with all these ups and downs, all these swings in the stock market, or should we think of medium and long term? And should we look for, um, so more long-term thinking, both in companies and in countries. Second, guess what? Industrial policies that were the norm everywhere became out of fashion in the last, let's say, five, six, maybe 10 years. So I believe we will need a return in industrial policies. And who says industrial policies? I see right now, again, as it happened in 2008, an increasing presence of government in the business sector. Unlike 2008, when the public opinion was against, now the public opinion is more in favor because so much unemployment. So the population says, let's have the government. The government is here. So as a result of the competition from China, I see more long-term thinking, forgetting about the short-term, this very short-term type of work that we have seen in the companies. I see that industrial policy, I've heard telecom companies here in the U.S. asking the government, please help with the building of the infrastructure of the 5G because otherwise we'll fall behind. Don't let the market, and much more so right now, don't let the market decide. 
don't let the market invest because that will be much slower and let's work together. So long-term, I see industrial policy. I see the need for more working together, universities, civil society, private sector, and public sector governments, as we see in China. And then China still competes uh, with low labor costs. The low labor cost is both at the bottom, that we did a comparison, and still is cheap, and at the top. So if you look at the average salary of a CEO in the top 500 public companies in the US, the average salary is $13 million a year. If you look at China, it's difficult to find out how much, but it will be around 500,000. So there is going to be, there is already a scrutiny on those very top salaries. So my opinion, and much less so in this crisis, the scrutiny will continue. I had a presentation from a Chinese bank, just let me finish with this anecdote, and say, oh, how come technology? And then regarding technology, and then the bank said, we use a lot of technology because basically developing the technology, as you know, banks are one of the heaviest users of technology, and that is very expensive for us in the US. Actually, technology development, because of the salaries, is relatively affordable. And that's why our margins are higher. So definitely, we need to question many of these things. And just one last thing. These Chinese companies and emerging market companies in general, they always have cheap products for the bottom of the pyramid. The bottom of the pyramid has been forgotten in many of our countries, and we have plenty of our citizens that their uh, purchasing power is quite low. So then what is happening is that then they go and buy Chinese products because they are cheaper. Companies in the US, in Europe, need to be able to manufacture also for the bottom of the pyramid because this is a very interesting part of the population and we need to also do that. And one more thing that I see as a trend and we need that is that part of the manufacturing power has to come back to the US and has to come back to Europe. Is unusual and not good for the economy that we don't manufacture masks anymore. We need masks. It's also important for the innovation of a country to be able to manufacture a blender or a toaster, something as simple as that. There is a lot of technology inside that. I see that we will bring some of the manufacturing capabilities back to our countries because we need that. So this outsourcing of manufacturing clearly didn't happen overnight. And in the book, you mentioned four phases of Chinese economic liberalization. Can you run us through this history and how China became the most powerful emerging market? So not only the most powerful, but the second biggest economy. So it was, as I said before, a combination of government policy and also a little bit of trial and error. Maybe we are, we say that we support failure, but it's not always the case. So if a policy didn't work, the government would rectify the policy and change it. And then also this long-term planning. We have said that governments are not good allocators of resources. We say that, we teach that in business schools, but guess what? Sometimes 
the private sector is not good allocator of resources as well. So maybe we have to go back to, as I said, long-term planning, both at the company level, at the government level, and also industrial policies. I think it's important in this working together that what divided countries don't work. And, and in China, you find this tremendous consensus to go together. For instance, in the policies that we describe in the book, Another thing that we say in the we see in the policies is that they, for instance, real estate investments in real estate were seen as a way to in China were seen as a way to launder money were seen as a way to capital flight from China. So then the Chinese government said, no, when you go abroad, can only invest in technology and value added sectors not in real estate. So now the real estate that was one of the sectors in which Chinese companies were investing the most is forbidden. You see immediately a fall in investments in real estate. So we need to go into the details and being in a business school, we need to also learn other ways of doing. Business schools have been part of the ecosystem. So we are a part of the teachings of maximize the willingness to pay of the client, go for maximize shareholder value. So the business schools also will need to change for this new phase of the economies that I believe the current pandemic will accelerate. The U.S. is the biggest economy, the greatest economy, the most innovative. It's time to work together again to maintain and also see that other companies from the other side of the world are competing with us with other parameters and we have to they are here to stay so we need to compete with them with other ways as well to conclude with you professor casanova the cover art of your book shows the united states and china playing a game of chess what do you believe is the us's best move right now and what do you think is the smartest move that China could make? <laughs> this is a long-term competition. So in the long term, you have to also learn from your competitor. We say competition is good. So now we have serious competition from what is still quite unknown. We are unable, for instance, State Grid is the biggest electricity company in the world. I mentioned this company in my class. No one knows this company. Uh, I ask my students who are in, who are going to join investment banking. They have never heard about ICBC, the biggest bank in the world. So first of all, we need to learn from our competitors. Again, because of the power of these companies, they are not going to go. They are going to, not all will succeed. Okay, This is the name of the game. You win and we have some examples of companies that have failed clearly. So we need to learn and we need to change, adjust the strategies because the size and the power of these new companies. And among the changes, as I said, one is more medium and long-term view. Second is the working together. Third, and in this working together, the role of the government. We all have to say that the government has a place in industrial policies because, yes, the government made mistakes, but as I said, the private sector as well. So we all sometimes fail to allocate resources in the most efficient way, but there are industries that need the all working together and universities as well 
they do play a role already. I talked to my colleagues, so many say I've worked with the State Department and we all need, and much more so in this very difficult situation in which we are in, we need to help each other for the medium and the long term. And forget sometimes a little bit is hard of the very short term. Yeah, salaries, bonuses depend on the short term. So put part of your bonus salaries for the medium term. And then the incentives have to change. It's not easy, but we should learn and change. Professor Casanova, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights on this critical topic. So thank you very much for the invitation to share the work that was done at the Emerging Markets Institute by Anne Miru, my colleague who comes from UNCTAD, from the United Nations Committee of Trade and Development, and myself in the last five years. The book is the result of the four reports that we publish every year, and that came as a surprise. We learn with the reports about the power of these uh, companies. We have to see this as an opportunity for us to change, an opportunity to change our mindset, to learn from those companies that are here in the U.S. and all over the world, and also in the business schools, we are in a business school, to, again, add case studies about these companies and also change what, what has been, as of now, the norm in some of our teachings. Be brave and say, you know, we face this disruption, so we have a disruption coming from technology and another disruption coming from the rise of China that we have to adjust to become stronger because competition makes us stronger and that's what is the good news in this situation. Thank you again, Professor. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by Jack Moriarty and Greg Wool. I'm your host for this episode, Gadi Arita. Music by Poddington Bear. Logo by Kaleshi Pomango. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.